Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to elders past and present. The Hotline is proud to be an ongoing supporter of Jira, an Aboriginal-controlled community organisation where culture is shared and celebrated. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Big Sister Hotline, how can we help? Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with that no-good Nick boyfriend. We know that the answer is yes. My guest this week is a lawyer and researcher based in Melbourne who is currently completing a PhD on the exploitation of migrant workers in Australia. She examines and writes about migration, trafficking, labour law, and other human rights issues. She's a forum member of the Cambridge Centre for the Study of Global Human Movement and a former editor of the Cambridge Journal of International Comparative Law. She is Sayomi Ariyawansa. Sayomi, welcome to the hotline. Thank you for having me. I have to say, no one is going to be able to see this, but I am deeply admiring of that brilliant shirt that you're wearing. Oh, thank you. I'm all about the Zoom shirt. I've (laughs) I've really gotten into it in lockdown. A lot of people are into the Zoom eye. Mm. Yeah, sadly, I don't have the skills for that. So I do have skills in ordering online. And those are the skills that I've really gone with these years. So we, you're, you're one of the many incredible, interesting women that I've connected with on Instagram. And we chatted a little bit recently. And uh, I invited you to come on to the hotline because I was very intrigued by the work that you're doing with migrant workers. Can we talk about that straight off the bat? Yes, and thank you so much for inviting me onto your podcast. And I think it's um, a testament to um, your graciousness and generosity in sharing your platform this way. So I really appreciate that. Um, Yeah, so I'm just finishing a PhD on the exploitation of migrant workers in Australia, um, which has really come to the fore um, in the fallout from the COVID pandemic and and the lockdown. but I think the reason why I was drawn to this work is because I myself am a migrant, but I've had the very privileged migrant experience of coming over with a permanent visa. And I've come to realise that in, in recent decades, Australia has moved away from this quote unquote tradition of permanent migration to really embracing temporary migration. And with that has come a slew of 
community and social issues that I think we're only really still starting to discover. Um, because in Australia at the moment, there's about 4 million people who are here on temporary visas. Um, and these are people who work, who are educated in, um, and who are obviously part of our community in many ways. But in other ways, they're very much excluded. So they can't access lots of social support services. Um, some of them may or may not have a pathway to permanent residence. So Australian migration policies and kind of the system we have here is predicated on the idea that you're either permanent or you're temporary. You're either a resident or you're a visitor. But increasingly, there are people who fit in between. And that's kind of what I'm looking at in my research, the people who in many ways are not quite Australian, which is a term that Peter Mayers uses in his, his book. So I'm looking at the exploitation of migrant workers in Australia, and we do see it come up in the news quite a bit because you hear about the stories of um, backpackers on remote farms experiencing really severe exploitation, and particularly with women, things like sexual assault and sexual coercion. Um, and then we do hear about it in the political space because there's so much racial dog whistling around migrants coming to Australia and taking our jobs. But in my research, I'm trying to explore this, this idea that in Australia, there's this growing number of people in our community who are falling through the gaps because they're neither permanent nor temporary. They're not really residents. They're not really visitors. They're sort, they're sort of in between. Mm -hmm. And so my research centres on, on those people. And there are so many ways that I can talk about what I'm doing, but kind of an interesting trend that I've seen is this distinction between skilled labour and low-skilled labour. Um, and it's a distinction that I don't really believe in because all work is work, right? Um, well, all work is valuable. Oftentimes what is classified as low-skilled labour is actually the labour that is required for the world to function. And, I mean, it's a classism at, oh, at its root. Oh, absolutely. It? I mean, and... The and this pandemic has been an excellent example of that. Like, who are the essential workers? They're people who we would classify as low-skilled workers. Garbage collectors, commercial cleaners, posties, packers, people who nurses. are in factories, nurses. Nurses. I mean, that's a whole other other thing. Childcare um, workers. Yeah. And uh, it's really interesting uh, on, the, on childcare workers um, because in Australia we're different occupations are covered by awards and one way that the unions representing childcare workers have tried to say that this work is valuable is um, they've compared the work of childcare workers to people which is obviously female dominated with work in the manufacturing sector which is also which is male dominated and typically paid a lot more and so these unions have had to say things like oh well childcare is actually really difficult you know it's not you know these women have diplomas or degrees in some cases there are quality assurance standards like they've had to go to such a rigmarole to to say that childcare work is work which blows my mind I've, there are obviously a lot of people who haven't spent too much time with their children and by people I mean men anyway <laughs> that's a whole little sidebar but um in Australia this distinction between skilled work and low skilled work 
sort of directly corresponds to the rights that we give people in our community. So for skilled workers, um, even temporary skilled workers, they can bring their families with them. They have a pathway to citizenship and or re residency, um, which is, uh, sorry, they have a pathway to permanent residence uh, and maybe also citizenship. Um, and in some, for some programs like the Regional Migration Program, these workers are also able to access uh, the Medicare system because in a sort of strange way, these rights that we, that we have, the right to our family, the right to access a public healthcare system, they're framed as incentives when we're talking about migrants. So on the flip side, for low-skilled workers, low-skilled um, essential workers often, the position is very different because in Australia we don't actually have a dedicated low-skilled program. So a lot of the people who undertake that low-paid, um, low-skilled, you know, classified low-skilled work in uh, the horticulture sector or cleaning or hospitality, um, the aged care sector, which has really cropped up in COVID, um, are people like international students, um, backpackers, people who aren't designated as workers under our migration system. So they come in all sorts of ways. The only sort of dedicated migration system that we do have for quote unquote low skilled work um, is the Pacific Labor Scheme and the Pacific Seasonal Worker Program. And these are programs that are for nationals from the Pacific Island islands to come to Australia to undertake certain types of work. Um, it started off with fruit picking in the horticulture sector um, and now there's um, an expansion into the aged care sectors and other sectors. Um, but the thing about the Pacific Island scheme is that in my view it's very much like a guest worker program. Yeah. So people who come to Australia under that program have no pathway to permanent residence or citizenship they're barred from that so they're kind of placed in a situation where they are in, indefinitely temporary um, and for seasonal workers they're encouraged to come to Australia for up to nine months of every year so they come here for nine months and then they return and then they come back again and they're encouraged to do so for successive seasons and under the Pacific Labor Scheme people can come to Australia for up to three years at a time. But again, it's three years and three years only. You can come back again on another three-year visa, but there's no possibility of extending that time um, in a way that would allow you to permanently settle in Australia. And the big thing is that these workers can't bring their families with them. And there is very much a colonial aspect to it. This isn't the first time that Australia has gone to the Pacific Islands to fulfill our essential labour needs. I mean, mm -hmm. we have a really hideous past of doing this um, in our early history around, you know, the 1880s and, and beyond um, with uh, Pacific Island workers in the sugar industry. So I, I think it's very telling that we're returning back to the Pacific Islands to fulfill these uh, labour shortages um, and we're framing it as a development initiative, which is very, very common because labour migration worldwide has been seen as, as a development opportunity because people work and they send their money back home. 
Um, it's a practice known as remittances. And what's interesting as well is that women have been seen as these agents of development because women, even though there's a global pay gap and they're typically paid less than men, they still send more as more than men or equal to men back to their home countries. And they tend to do so for longer as well. I can only speculate as to why that might be the case, but it's a really distinct pattern. And in Australia, expanding the Pacific Island labour scheme to um, sectors like the aged care sector, that is really trying to get a lot of women into the country. Um, and so it's fulfilling similar patterns that we've seen overseas, although I would say that the Australian program is ostensibly regulated um, in that in these specific development programs, the workers are supposed to be provided with pastoral care and, and things like that. But they're very, very small programs at the moment. And even now we see massive underpayments. There have been deaths. Um, there's been all sorts of exploitation because employers can take deductions for accommodation and transport and various things from um, what they pay to the workers. So even with a small quote unquote, highly regulated program, we're still seeing very concerning trends. And my fear is that as a nation, I think that we're still very much into this idea of importing labor. Even with COVID, um, even though borders are closed now, um, a lot of what I'm seeing in terms of Australia's economic recovery relates to temporary labor migration. Because Temporary labour migrants are the perfect economic input for this country because they come here, they work. We don't owe them anything because they can't access any of the government services that are available to permanent residents and citizens. And we can also, they're, they're, they're temporary, so they will leave or they oh. will be trapped in an endless cycle of um, temporary visas. So, um, and businesses has, have caught on to this as well. Um, from the moment that any form of temporary labour migration um, became available in Australia, employers have been consistently pushing for more and more access. And it's no mystery as to why. And mm. so I'm really concerned that part of our economic recovery will depend on the labour of exploited workers, both here but also overseas. Um, and as these specific labour programs become bigger, if they do become bigger, then we may be seeing a lot of the programs, the problems that are very evident overseas. There is endless reams of evidence about the exploitation of um, labour migrants and particularly women um, from overseas jurisdictions. And so I'm just, I'm wondering why we're, we're marching towards this end goal when we know that there are so many problems associated with these types of programs. Um, and I'm very skeptical about this development argument because countries like Sri Lanka and the Philippines and Bangladesh and many others have been sending their predominantly women over to the Middle East and Canada and other countries for, for decades. But we don't see these countries, you know, suddenly being moved out of poverty. And we, mm. do, we do see multiple generations of uh, people doing the same thing. So they might have grown, a, a, a woman may have grown up with her mother working in the Middle East and she may end up doing the same thing herself. Mm. The thing about labour migration is that it's always projected as a win, win, win. 
It's a win for the country of origin. It's a win for the for the country that receives the migrant, like Australia, and it's a win for the migrant worker. But one of my friends, Ruska Jaisuria, really aptly said, like, if something seems too good to be true, you know, it probably isn't. And there's someone losing out in this equation. Well, and also in the case of domestic workers in particular, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the use of um, Filipino maids and childcare workers, as you said, in the Middle East in particular. The idea that it's a win to somehow spend the majority of your year away from your children because it's it's one of the few economic opportunities that you may have to send money to your family. And as you said before, you know, the, dispar- the disparity between the amount of money that women send, women in these situations send home versus that of men is actually in keeping with, I'm not an expert in this area at all, but some of the research that I've done I remember a statistic once that um, on average men put around 30% of their wage back into their families, whereas women put around 90% of their wage back into their families and and into their communities, um, which actually rang true to me. And it even rings true when you think about uh, outside of migrant workers, when you think about the way that we frame things like childcare in this country, where women say things like, well, I was going to go back to work, but my salary barely covered the childcare. Oh, I hate that so much. Yeah. And uh, oh. even in that, even in the response to the budget this year, there were lots of people who came out and said, Morrison's forgetting women because he didn't think about childcare, which is true. But I just thought, why are we still framing it this way? Yeah. Why is childcare still the um, female component of the, you know, usually heterosexual partnership that that these children live in. It's just... Absolutely. And in order for her to justify going back to work, she needs to be able to prove that there's an economic benefit, that her salary won't suffer too too badly. It's hideous. Um, that's, a, that's a side topic. But I'm, I'm interested as well in the ways that... Obviously, racism is a huge factor in this. And one of the things that underpins this as well is the sense that, or that perpetuates the um, the oppressive nature of this, is the idea that a situation that is essentially not really that fair to migrant workers is framed as fair or is framed, as you said, a, as a win for everyone because of this idea that they should be grateful for the mm. opportunity. Yeah, which yeah. feeds then into the happy migrant mentality where y- you will be, you know, which um, Yasmin Abdelmajid was on the show a few weeks ago and we talked about the backlash obviously that she experienced but that also was amplified by, you know, she was a young woman who was coming into her own power and she subverted the idea that people, that she subverted the expectations that white Australia placed on her, which was that she should be grateful to be here and never complain. Yeah, I, yeah, and it, the race is a huge issue. Um, would we ever tell a white mother that she needs to be separated from her children for three years in order to ensure that her children receive some quality education? We would not. Yeah. We, there's no way we would ever do that. Um, and in Australia, um, obvi- I, so some of my research is historical and I look at the 
transition that we've made as a as a country. And the racism is very, very obvious at the beginning with the white Australia policy, but it lingers. And the way that it kind of plays out, I think, is is sometimes in this distinction between skilled and low-skilled workers, because there's this idea that all of these countries are competing for the highly skilled um, people who are able to easily integrate into uh, an English-speaking country versus this idea that there are hordes of all these poor people who would do any job at any um, at any wage um, who would substantially transform the country. So there's this this dichotomy that that is, I think, underlying a lot of our um, migration policies, and it, it certainly doesn't reflect the truth of the scenario or what is morally right. Um, and I think the other proxy for racialized assumptions is through the use of English language requirements. So most recently with partner visas, there's been a change where um, in order to obtain a permanent partner visa in Australia, you need to ha- fulfil certain English requirements or commit to taking 500 hours of English lessons or something like that. Now, these things have come and gone over Australia's migration history, but one of the um, justifications, um, aside from the usual integration, you know, participation in Australian society thing, was that um, a lot of these uh, women who have partner visas or who are applying for partner visas are vulnerable to uh, domestic violence from their partner and that their part that somehow by them learning English, it means that that risk is somehow dissipated mm. or, you know, they're somehow... That it's it's that is the secret source here. The ability to to speak English is your protection against um, family violence, which is, as we know, absolutely yeah. untrue. Um, one of the researchers, um, Marie Seagrave, who's been doing a lot of really great work um, into women who find themselves in situations of domestic violence who are on temporary visas. Um, she said that they've completely misconstrued all of her findings. Um, she said that um, there are, in fact, many women, as we know, who speak English, who are Australian, who also experience family violence, but um, but somehow that doesn't seem to factor into the reasoning. And she also said that if you do want to protect these women on temporary visas, because it does happen, of course, as in um, many situations, family violence does happen. She said they need access to government supports and services so that they are empowered to leave those relationships um, and have some sort of support so they're not just um, pulled off the pathway to permanent residence, for example, because mm. it's a little bit tricky, but um, for for many women who are in those coercive relationships where there's this um precariousness associated with their migrant status um that relationship of coercion is is um intensified by their partner usually male saying well if you leave me you won't get a permanent visa so you'll have to leave and you know sometimes you know the children might be australian so the children might stay or it's they they get into very very messy situations so i mean for me the most practical solution or a point of assistance would be to consider that underlying precariousness and to say to women you know there is a place where you can go where you can leave him and and you will have some support to do so um 
I mean, Australian citizens don't have that support, um, I don't think. Um, I think it's quite clear that many women have tried to leave um, violent situations or coercive situations and have not been supported to do so. Um, and that's, I think, exacerbated in situations where people are on temporary visas, away from family, away from friends, away from all those networks. It reminds me of uh, that that excuse that, you know, well, English, speaking English is the difference here. Speaking English is the thing that will somehow, quote, unquote, prevent the family violence from being perpetrated when, as you said, we know that that's absolutely not true. We know that domestic abuse doesn't discriminate against race, class, economics. You know, some of the stories that I've personally been sent from women, such a different cross-section, you know, in terms of their lives and in terms of what you would imagine they could access. And it and it still doesn't change the fact that behind closed doors these dynamics mm. play out. This abuse is perpetrated. Um, but it reminds me of the excuse that was also offered and is also offered by the judicial system and by judges and lawyers and families in terms of defending the forced sterilisation of disabled women and disabled girls that well, this is, we need to do this in order to prevent, I've, you know, seen this evidence offered or this excuse offered, we need to do this in order to prevent sexual abuse. And you think, no, you're just preventing the logical evidence of sexual abuse, which is pregnancy. It doesn't actually do anything structurally to change the significantly increased risk of sexual violence against disabled girls and women. Yeah. It is kind of like a version of gaslighting where you're presented these, regardless of what the situation is, whether it's migrant women experiencing family violence or disabled women experiencing forced sterilisation, that you're offered these excuses by people who have been given authority. Mm. You're sitting there and saying, but this is, this is ridiculous. Clearly yeah. that's not the case. And yet the, the myth is maintained. Yeah, yeah. It's this idea that you can somehow be protected from something by having the ability to speak. It's just, it. Mm. it's really difficult um, and it's very frustrating because there are very real protection issues here. We know that there are, there are vulnerable parts of um, the migrant community where there are things like forced marriage. There are things like... Um, brides coming over from other countries and, and coming into very, very difficult situations. It's true and it does happen. But when the solution is is so manifestly inappropriate, um, it's, it's incredibly disheartening because it does feel as an advocate that you're being gaslit because suddenly the government's saying, well, we're listening to you. We've heard that this is a problem. Here's a solution. And, you know, be grateful that we're listening to you and we're trying to figure, figure this out um, when it has a completely different purpose. I mean, English has always been a proxy for integration, um, being a quote-unquote model migrant. Um, and that's in part my story because my father came, I moved to Australia when I was two because my father is a highly qualified economist with a graduate degree and a postgraduate degree. Um, and he came over as a skilled um, migrant on a permanent visa because he could speak English and, all, you know, met all these various tests. And so it's weird because 
people often will say to me, like, if I say that I'm Sri Lankan, people will often be like, oh, you know, because I think maybe Sri Lankans have this reputation. I don't know what it is. It's very uncomfortable for me as a migrant, but I often do, and I have heard it all through my life where people are like, oh, you're a good Aussie, you speak English really well, like, good for you, well done. Like, I just, yeah. I have so well, many is, thoughts on this. Migrant rarely ever means white, does it? Yeah. People think migrant workers and they always think of uh, people of colour, non-white um like white people get to be expats. Oh, yeah. I mean, my yeah. father, if he was white, he would be an expat. He mm. would be an expat um, because it's, it, has, it, just, it doesn't really correlate with skill level. Again, I, I, I don't believe in these different, the differences we, we create socially with different degrees and different things like that. I don't believe in that. But people do have argued with me saying that expats have a certain skill level, and that's just not true. I, you know, I should also at this point say that I grew up in an in an quote unquote expatriate community. I grew up in the Middle East, and definitely there is a yeah. It's it's um. I mean, I was a child, so I, but I obviously benefited from the system. Um, but even now, you know, the way that my dad will talk about like expats and or just just as if this is just what you get to be when you're white you're an expat mm. yeah. um and the the community that we lived in was actually very diverse in terms of race and cultural backgrounds but interestingly our international school had no omanis in it mm. because omani went to their own schools and our school may have been incredibly multicultural but it was still it was still it's just incredible and unsurprising how people who obviously exist in the dominant um, system, who who preside over dominant systems, manage to manipulate the situation always in our favour. Mm. It's interesting. I've had, so I feel very Australian. I haven't had that kind of identity crisis that I know a lot of um, migrants have. And I think in my experience, I'm more of a second generation migrant than a first generation migrant because I came here when I was two. I can't remember anything else. But then there are points where, for example, when my mother and father and I tried to vote in an election when we were in Sri Lanka, where we went to the Australian embassy there and we were just treated like how I imagine they would treat um, someone who was trying to apply for a protection visa or someone who they thought was trying to like, I don't know, somehow jump the Australian embassy fence and get a visa and, you know, it was just, it was just crazy. And my white husband um, went to vote in Australia House in the UK and was just ushered in with oh. no drama. I mean, they they took our pass passports from us at the gate in the Australian Embassy in Colombo. They we waited there for ages. They they eventually let us through as if, well, fine, we'll let you in. Um wow. so uh, it's interesting that you've had that expat experience because I've seen people having the expat experience in Sri Lanka and there's I mean, at least from what I observed, there's this sense that they're kind of lording it over the, the rest of the country in a way. Um, 
Um, and so it's at times like that where I where I don't know what to feel because I feel I felt very entitled to to enter the embassy and vote because I was entitled to do that. But then, yeah, it just made me feel like I didn't quite belong. I could talk to you about this for a really, really long time and I hope to keep talking to you about it. Uh, but for now, shall we get to the questions? Yes, let's shall. Please note my disclaimer in very big flashing lights that neither I nor Sayomi are doctors, counsellors or professionally trained sex therapists. We're just two women who've got a little thing called life experience and who both love a good espresso martini. Bored Wife asks... I'm in my early 40s. My husband and I have been together for almost 20 years, married for nearly eight. We have two young children together and the youngest is one. I feel like over the past few months I've been waking up. What I'm feeling has most likely been brought into sharp focus since I've returned to work from almost a year of maternity leave and have that much less time. Or I suppose the work that I need to do is now compressed into the time I have available outside of paid work. We haven't in my mind been close for years. And when I say close, I mean intimacy. Not physical intimacy, we do fit in sex where we can, but it's always when I've been the one to arrange babysitting for both kids. I'm pretty sure he equates intimacy with sex, whereas I, on the other hand, need to feel close to him to want to fuck. His lack of showing up for our relationship has really dulled my desire for him. He's never been a great conversationalist, at least with me, but overhearing him talk to his mates, you wouldn't know it. We've always had difficulty discussing grown-up issues, and lately I've found myself making a mental tally of everything I do and have done for our family and becoming resentful of what he gets away with not doing. An example, he doesn't do pooey nappies, full stop. Our son had an accident the other day when he wasn't wearing one and instead of helping me, he went into the other room. My daughter helped. He only seems to care for the baby when I ask him to. Very occasionally he'll volunteer, but it usually comes with a request to be quick. I suppose part of the reason I haven't brought things up with him yet is because I'm afraid of his response. I was the one who wanted to get married. I was the one who pushed to have kids. And even though he can be quite the absent parent, he does love his children. I feel a bit sick when I think about not seeing them every day if we divorce, although I don't believe he would seek even 50-50 care. When I think about the possibility of being a single mum and having my own place, I feel excited and hopeful. Is this all I need to know that our relationship is better off being over? Mostly, I feel like I can't be bothered trying anymore. We're meant to be talking things over this weekend, but I need to know I'm not being petty, right? When I think about spending the next 20 years in the same relationship with the bar where it is, ugh, but how do I know for certain that I'm not making a mistake? Your insight and discussion would be most welcome. Sayomi, what are your thoughts? Well, there's a lot in there, but the thing that I was really interested in what you are saying, board housewife, is that you say, when I think about the possibility of being a single mum and having my own place, I feel excited and hopeful. And I think you need to go with that instinct because there are so many pathways available to us, but I think we should choose the pathways that are, that are exciting and that are hopeful. Um, and I think in part when you're writing this response to us, uh, this question rather, I think I think you might even be asking for a little bit of permission to, 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 for that this is okay. I mean, we've been indoctrinated with this idea that once you have 
um, a husband and children, then you've made it and then that's the end. Um, that's where every romantic comedy usually ends and every fairy tale. But as you've discovered, it's just not true. And so I think, Clem, that you need to create some sort of like leave your husband jingle or like, <laughs> you know, that you can just play at these moments in life <laughs> because that's what I've been doing. <laughs> um, you talk about the bar for your relationship and the bar for your partner but I think we need to start thinking about the bar for our own lives. Like what do we want for ourselves? Um, and sometimes I think that if you think about it that way, like what do you want? What are you excited about? What are you hopeful about? And if you have this kind of conversation with yourself, I think you might find that your hus your partner doesn't really factor in that much at all. And I think that that is your answer. So I think you've got really good instincts and I, and I hope you feel empowered to follow them. I feel like I couldn't have said any of that better myself. Uh, and in fact, it is what I say all the time. Like sometimes I think I should change the name of this podcast to leave your husband. <laughs> um, and I agree with you. I, I think oftentimes what women who ask questions like this, whether or not they're for the podcast or whether or not you know, that it's just in conversations with their friends, that they are looking for that permission. And that's really interesting to me because I think that they know the answer. They know what they want. It's funny that in terms of um, seeking your own happiness, particularly for women who have come through direct experience to understand that the happiness we are sold by cishet society, as you said, you know, the, the marriage, the baby, what is it, love, marriage and the baby carriage, that that is actually for most of us not, or for many of us, I should say, I'm sure that there are lots of happy people out there, but for many of us, that is not actually true. That once we achieve those things that we're told will be the secret to not just our own happiness, but the things that will actually, the key that will evolve us into the life we're meant to be living as women, because unless we get married and unless we have children, we're somehow not fully living or not fully existing. That mm. once we realise that that's actually not true, it's still interesting that we look for permission to get rid of that. And I don't know whether or not that's because it is such a strong um, impetus in society for us to have those things or because women in general are always apologising for our existence and always trying to seek absolution for our choices. And maybe this thing of like, well, how could you leave a man? You know, why did you mm -hmm. hurt him like that? Why did you take your, your, his kids away from him as if somehow when we sign up. I, it, st it stuck out to me in this question actually that she feels a lot of guilt for having as she said, pushed him into this, pushed him into marriage, pushed him into having children. And I just want to kind of peel that back a little bit because he is a grown human who makes his own choices. If he didn't want to do those things, he could have said no. You know, you didn't force him to marry you. You didn't force him to have children. Either way, that is what has happened now and this is the situation that you're left with. And you don't have to, for the next 20 years, as you said, be responsible for, um, or you don't have to experience unhappiness because you feel responsible for the choices that he made. The fact that she says, I think about, as you said, that 
you know, she thinks about being a single mum and having her own place and is is excited about it. She also said that she's never had her own place before, mm. which is a massive thing. Um, every single mum that I know, as hard as it can be to transition from a dual marriage or a dual partnership to single parenthood, every single mum I know is fucking thrilled to have their own place to have a house that is theirs, where the shoes on the floor belong to them, where the laundry that they do is theirs and where they don't have this oppressive presence in their home reminding them of their deep wells of unhappiness. I think we need to hear about that more because I think that we, I feel so indoctrinated by the whole perfect nuclear family situation and I think there's a lot of social messaging around us that says if your husband is not being awful, then he's being amazing, you know. Yeah. And so I, I would love to hear more stories about amazing single women doing it on their own. And I think every woman needs to have a really cool aunt or cool big sister who's just doing their own thing because that's certainly something that I had. Um, I had yeah. a cool aunt who was, you know, is single, doesn't have children, does her own thing, and I saw how amazing her life was and I always thought I could have that life. That could be mm. my life. I don't need to, quote, unquote, settle um, mm. for what society has told me is the acceptable happy ending for all women, which is most, well, can not turn out that way. So I, I think that if you don't have a cool aunt, maybe Clem can be. Can I offer <laughs> you up as a cool aunt? Absolutely. <laughs> I had a great, a great single life. I mean, I, this is one of the things that... Um, one of the reasons why I do so many stories and posts on, say, Instagram about leaving your husband and about the benefits of being single is because exactly you're right. We don't have that model. Men are not shamed for being single dads. They're celebrated, if anything. Men aren't shamed for being, you know, swinging bachelors. Mm -hmm. um, it's despite the fact that marriage overwhelmingly benefits men economically and obviously in terms of unpaid domestic labor and actually in terms of their own happiness because why wouldn't you be happy having someone doing everything for you um despite the fact that marriage is is designed for men it's still sold in society this the great trick of it is that women are taught that without it we will be miserable and alone and unfulfilled we are brainwashed from day yeah. one, day one yep. with princess Which stories and Disney and then, you know, you graduate to Bridget Jones. Um, you just never hear the stories of the very happy, amazing single women in our lives. And so I really think well, we need that. Yeah, and I think that we need to change the way that we even conceive of singlehood or singledom, that particularly in women to be single is to be incomplete, whereas mm. I recently started saying I, I prefer to think of myself not as single even though I will proudly own that term as well but as complete I'm a complete mm. person all by myself and anyone who I have in my life now has to add to my life mm. yeah rather rather than being the key that will somehow make my life worthwhile Definitely. I think that she I think that she should leave um I think that also for for everyone, spending the rest of your life with someone who is unfulfilling your needs or who's not fulfilling your needs and who you feel like you can't even have a conversation with 
is so like even thinking about that makes me feel suffocated. I know there was a lot in there that was pretty difficult. Like the doesn't do pooey nappies. Yeah, I mean that's babysitting children. That, but yes, I know that this question will resonate with with a lot of people. Board wife Saomi and I are not just giving you permission to leave. We're saying you'd better leave, girl. (laughs) It's a jingle here. We really need that. We really, I really. that yes you're right I will get on that (laughs) I will make the jingle you leave your husband board wife and then uh then we'll meet again in a few weeks to to compare notes Okay, there's a little bit of a content note on this one. We're going to be discussing sexual assault and uh, how to how to best support people in your life when you've discovered that they've had a sexual assault perpetrated against them. So just go gently with this. If you would like to skip forward to the next question, then please feel free to do so. After hearing a conversation, I found out that my 17-year-old younger sister was sexually assaulted earlier this year. I don't know all the details, nor do I want to, but I know one thing for sure, consent was not given. It took me a week to speak to her about it as I was unable to come to terms with the fact that something like this had happened to my baby sister. I let her know that I was there if she wanted to do anything about what had happened, but she told me that she no longer thinks about it. It happened and that's it. I emphasized that this was serious and that she wasn't blowing things out of proportion as men tend to accuse women of in these kinds of circumstances, but she wasn't interested in taking the situation further. She hasn't told my parents and doesn't feel the need to pursue anything. Of course, I understand, as her opinion is the only valid one in this case. However, this entire situation has been slowly eating away at me for the past few months, and I've been suppressing any emotion I have in regards to what I will never unknow. I know the piece of shit who did this to her, as he is one of my high school friend's brother. Not only this, but the day it happened, my mother asked me if I trusted that they were a good family and if it was okay for my sister to go over to his house. I feel responsible for telling her yes, as we all know what happened next. The, the little sister asking this question then describes arranging to meet the boy responsible and feeling an intense desire within that meeting to hurt him because of what he had done. She then says, it's now almost November and I haven't spoken to my sister about anything since. I know it's self- selfish of me to want to take action, but to be honest, I want nothing more than to ruin this piece of shit's life. The only way that will happen, however, is if my sister agrees. I need advice because I'm no longer able to suppress the emotions I'm feeling about all of this. Every time I look at my sister, I'm reminded that I wasn't able to protect her. Every time I look at my mother, I'm reminded that I'm keeping a huge secret from her. And every time I see my friend's name pop up on social media, I'm reminded of what her brother did. Every time I see a man, I'm reminded that he probably has sexually assaulted someone at some point. I'm not even the victim here, but my selfish mind just wants all of this to go away. If only that it were that easy or that is if men cease to exist. And I wanted to just combine this with another question that I received recently as well, because it, it covers all the same topic. And she, this next questioner sums it up really well. She asked, what is the best way to respond to our loved ones when they tell us they've experienced sexual assault, particularly if it has happened years ago and they're opening up about it now? What support or advice can we offer that is compassionate, practical, and meaningful? What services are there for us slash them? And anything else that you want to add and feel should be talked about would be helpful. Another huge question. Mm. It's another huge question. And I just, 
I would really just love to give this little sister a big hug because her pain is so clear from that question. Um, The first thing I wanted to say was that you're not selfish. You are absolutely not selfish for feeling how you feel. And you are not responsible for what happened either Um, because I get that sense from your question that that's been weighing on you. I understand why you feel how you feel because it's an incredibly difficult situation and, of course, it's really natural to feel hatred towards the person who's caused so much pain towards your sister and also feel a bit helpless because your sister doesn't seem to want to take any further action at this stage and and so you feel like justice hasn't been served yet so I really I understand what why you feel such pain right now I think that you have been a wonderful big sister to your sister and I really wanted to say that because you listened to her you were there you are there for her and you've told her that you are there for her and I think that that is a really big thing that you need to acknowledge that you have extended your support to her in that way and you've told her that you know it is a big deal and that and I think that by extending that support that's a really important way that you can support your sister Um, and I think that there's a lot of there are a lot of people involved here you've mentioned also your mother um, and your friend who is the friend of the of the man who did this to your sister. And, and I think that it is a, a complicated situation with a few parties involved. So I do think it's probably worth reaching out for support yourself. Um, I had a look at different services that are available and one is 1-800-RESPECT, which we all know about. Um, And they support not only people who have experienced um, sexual assault, but people who are impacted by it. And I think that it clearly has impacted you. And so even though I I can see that you're putting some distance between you and your sister and you're really recognising that it's your sister who's um, experienced this, um, what the assault and what happened. But I think you can also recognize that you yourself have been really impacted by what has happened to your sister and so I think that you are also very much entitled to seek help for how you're feeling about this situation and in doing so I think that you'll be able to um, get some advice from someone who is qualified in this area about what steps you might be able to take to help manage how you're feeling right now And it might be something like approaching your sister and having another conversation with her or extending your support again or ways in which you can kind of frame how you process what has happened. Um, I, I just want you to feel that you are a really good person, a really good sister. You're not selfish. You've done all from what you've said, you've done really, really strong, you've taken really strong actions to support your sister. And I think that you should um, take comfort in that as well. Um, And not beat yourself up so much for how you feel, because it's completely natural to feel that way. That's such a compassionate response. And I agree with every part of it. I I think that it's very clear, as you said, that this little sister slash big sister 
has been deeply impacted and wounded by having this knowledge. Um, and I, she's correctly identified that it is not her place to push it further without her little sister's uh, permission or desire or will to pursue it. But as you said, those feelings need to go somewhere. And I think that a, a good first practical port of call is to contact 1-800-RESPECT. I will list the state-based sexual assault service helplines for anyone who may need to call them either as a victim survivor or as someone who is supporting a victim survivor. I also recommend seeking counselling for it. I think that having, you know, if you can use the mental health sessions that are provided to us, but it was one of the things that you would, the services that is provided to us as Australian citizens that should be accessible to everyone who is living here. Uh, but that's a different story for another time, I guess. But I would strongly recommend securing those sessions and talking about this with a professional trained counsellor because it does sound like it's really eating you up and it does sound like without it I'm concerned that without having someone to talk to about this who can who can walk you through the trauma that you've experienced vicariously as a result of this assault that you may end up trying to push for a result from your sister, which will actually make things worse between you, um, which I would think would be terrible and obviously the last thing that you want to do in terms of supporting her. I think it's also really important to touch on what you said about your the guilt that you experience about telling your mother that this boy came from a quote, unquote, good family. There's no such thing as a good family. There's no such thing as particularly in regards to sexual assault or domestic abuse or any kind of perpetrated violence against vulnerable people. There are individual choices and people make choices. And this boy, regardless of what kind of family he came from, made a choice to perpetrate this violence against your sister. And just as we know that domestic abuse doesn't discriminate by class, race or economic position, so too do we know that the choice to perpetrate sexual assault does not discriminate based on uh, the background of the person making that choice. So firstly, I think that you need to remove any guilt that you feel over that. You cannot possibly have known the choices that this person would, would make and you aren't responsible for them. The only person who is responsible for rape and sexual assault is the person perpetrating that rape and sexual assault. That may be something that you need to work through the guilt of with a therapist, but I think that that is something that you you definitely need to begin to let go. Um, and for all people as well, it's it's impossible to predict these things. Any sexual assault that someone has, I mean, most sexual assault, as we know, is perpetrated by people who know each other uh, or who know their victim. Um, and it's not like they walk around with a sign around their neck. You know, this is what makes it so difficult to deal with the aftermath. I think that you need to have some compassion for yourself and you need to, to go gently on yourself just as you would want, want to go gently on your sister. And as Sayomi said, I think broaching a conversation with her again is a good idea, but it can't be in terms of wanting to pursue any action. 
it has to be in terms of you just letting her know that you are there for her and that you feel deeply what has happened to her and that ask ask her what she needs from you and you you almost just have to be okay with what she says and and if you find that you're not then that is definitely the point at which you you have to start seeking some kind of professional help straight away because otherwise those feelings will eat you up and become more and more traumatizing but i think sammy we both agree that this that she's definitely not failed Definitely, definitely. And yes, just I in speaking to your sister again, certainly not with the objective of um, doing anything that your sister doesn't want to do, but as Clem said, with the objective of providing your support to her um, and just reaching out again because um, I'm sure that would be appreciated and I'm sure it will also help you as well to to express some of the feelings, maybe some of the feelings you have around feeling a little helpless as to how you might be able to help your sister um, in some ways that you you would be able to. And maybe that's just listening. Maybe that's just saying that you're there for her. But um, it's it is clear that there are lots of pent up emotions there, and so I think we're both in agreement that it would be a good idea for you to speak to a qualified um, therapist or counselor to deal with those issues. And it's completely normal, completely normal to feel how you feel. You're not selfish. That it's just you sound like such a beautiful person. And so, please take care of of you and get the support that you need. And for anyone listening who has been triggered by that conversation or who would like to seek further support and help, that number again was one eight hundred respect. That's an Australian based number. If you are an international listener, then we encourage you to seek out the services that are available to you. Um, and just remember that it's not your fault. Nothing you couldn't have could have done could have prevented it. It is a choice that is perpetrated by other people. And we love you. We love you. Confused and exhausted says, hi, big sisters. I hope you can help me with my confusion and feelings of guilt as I navigate a maybe breakup. I'm 33 and have been with my boyfriend for two years, living together for a year and a half. We've been trying to get pregnant since January, unsuccessful so far, and looking for a house to buy that would be our family home. Except that last weekend I broke up with him. I've had reservations about the relationship for a long time, even pre-COVID, due to our opposing work schedules, his non-presence even when at home, and the fact that I didn't feel loved. I brought these problems up with him on a few occasions, but each time nothing really changed. Now that I've made my position very clear, he has been distraught, says he loves me so much and says he is dedicated to working things out with counselling, etc. something I suggested six months ago that was not met with enthusiasm. He is a genuinely good guy. Our housework is more or less 50-50 and we do have good conversations. I've just lost the loving feeling because all of the bullshit has chipped it away and I don't know if it will come back. I feel like I should give it another chance because of my age and the fact that I was single for eight years before we got together and I want to have a baby soon. I just really want my own space though, my own house with my things and no compromises. I know I will be lonely, but I know several women who have had babies on their own with IVF and I'm really drawn to doing things on my timeline. I feel guilty for being uncompromising. Is it possible to be in a parenting partnership with someone you don't live with or am I just doing some kind of soft breakup? 
confused and exhausted. This, Sam, goes to what you were saying before. She's asking our permission. Yeah, I can see that right there. I really want my own space, my own house, my own things, no compromises, and don't feel apologetic for being uncompromising. I think that's perfectly fine. Women need to be less compromising in most factors of our lives. Absolutely. Um, I mean, the thing that occurred to me when hearing your question is that you say he's a decent person, but you're not sure that you love him. And I think that might be your answer right there. And you've acknowledged that uh, not being in a partnership might be a bit lonely. and, And that is true. But being in a partnership can come with compromises that you're just not willing to accept. Um, I don't think any situation is ever perfect, whether you're in a a relationship or not. There's always something that's not perfect. But I think it's the case of finding what option is best for you. And maybe for you, having your own space, doing it on your own, and maybe feeling a bit lonely at times. And and for what it's worth, people in relationships can often feel lonely too. So it's certainly not something that's limited to people who are who are not in relationships. Um, I, I just I'm getting the vibe that you want the the go ahead to just follow your instincts. And and I really believe that women have incredible instincts with relationships. I, it comes to up time and time again with conversations I've had with friends where they've ignored what was in their heart or in their gut to go with what they thought they should do. Um, That phrase of shooting all over yourself, you know, I just, it's, we always feel that there's something we should be doing. We should be compromising. He's a nice guy. You know, he's not terrible. If, If he can be nice, can't I compromise? No, just stop thinking in that way. Think about what you want be uncompromising. It's your life and you, you know, only have it once on this earth. Um, So I think go ahead, follow your instincts. It sounds like you want to explore life without your partner. And I think you should just go for it. And for what it's worth, I do know of people who have co-parented with a child. I've I've not had that experience myself, but I I do know of situations where where it can work too. So Agreed. I, again, it's funny how many women seek permission to end relationships with men who they would say like, he's a good guy. Should I, am I allowed to leave him? He hasn't done anything wrong. And you're like, you don't have to stay with men just because they're kind of nice guys. You know, the the reason to leave a relationship doesn't have to be, well, he assaulted me. You know, you're allowed mm-hmm. to leave them because you find them a bit boring. Yeah. Or you're allowed to leave them because it's just not what you want. Or, or as you said, you want your own place. You know, that it is fine. Relationships, you don't sign a contract in blood when a man picks you where you have to then give him your entire life just because he's there. It comes back to those two things that there is a very low bar for men And if Mm -hmm. they exceed that bar, there's that expectation that, well, I mean, he's a good guy. So, and then there's also the other part. I leave and that would be a terrible thing to do. Yeah. Good guy. So what was the other thing? No, the other thing is that um, the, the, the end goal of the nuclear family. I think those two things are so powerful. Um, Mm. And 
I think those are the two things that keep women in relationships that don't make them ecstatically happy, which is what you should be in. That's what we, we deserve to be happy and content and follow our hopes and dreams. And if there's, if there's someone with you along the way, great. And if there's not, that's fine too. Be uncompromising. Exactly. And I have to say as well that I think one of the real challenges for women who want to have women who are attracted to men and who are in relationships with men and who would like to have a baby is, as you said, this kind of the the dangling carrot of the nuclear family model. Because we don't live in a world that that actually separates mothering from loving. And I think that one of the things that would be incredibly liberating for women who want to have children so I should say for cis women who want to have children, is to actually divest motherhood from the concept of sexual relationships. That if you could find someone with whom you would like to have a family and that works out, obviously there are functional families out there where the parents do genuinely work together and they do genuinely love and support each other. But my experience suggests that an actual majority of women are being who are partnered with cishet men are being significantly let down constantly and that one of the things that maybe and perhaps we we had this with the first question that was submitted as well one of the things that leads to that compromise is the desire for a child mm-hmm. whereas if we lived in a society that said it is perfectly natural and normal for you to want to have a, a baby it's obviously natural and normal for you to not want that too but it is natural and normal for you want to want to have a child and you should be supported to do that if that's what you want. And it doesn't have to be in a relationship because the systems that we have in place will support you to be able to create the next generation of humans. And that in itself is such a radical thought still, mm. which is crazy it, in 2020. Every, like I said before, every single mum that I know has, despite the challenges, is living in a much happier scenario by herself Um, and they may have relationships beyond separation as well but those relationships are held on their terms because the thing that happens when you have a child and obviously I'm speaking just to my own personal experience here is that no amount of pre-child romantic love can ever predict how you will respond when you have this tiny creature in your life that immediately becomes your first priority. Um, And that everything else outside of that, the compromises that we may have made for men before that, because we were either playing the role of the supportive girlfriend or the supportive wife, or we were genuinely committed to this relationship because it was, it was the most immediate one in our life is superseded by this child that you suddenly have to take care of, that the man who you're living with who previously you may have been deeply concerned about his emotional state suddenly becomes far, far less important when you when you actually have like the survival instinct for a child kick in. And so anything he does that fails to support you in that role is magnified in terms of irritation and magnified in terms of how useless it is in your life. And I think that that's something that we don't talk about enough either is that for a lot of women, having a child is, is something that, um, how do I, how do I phrase this properly? 
it can be the making of who of your understanding of yourself. And again, I want to reiterate that I don't think that having a child evolves women in any way because to not have a child does not take anything away from your from your identity or your understanding of yourself. It's more just that the int- introduction of this tiny baby to your life cannot help but drastically change who you are as a person. And that I think is is something that obviously has a huge impact on relationships because a lot of men fail to evolve with women in that role. They fail to be the support that women need. And so then you find yourself in a situation like our first little sister who was saying, I'm incredibly bored. I feel let down. He doesn't support me or the family. Do I need to stay with him for the rest of my life? So to this little sister whose question we're answering, that is the future for you maybe. That is the future for you if you partner up with a man who you're not really that invested in but you just want to have a child and so he's conveniently there. It is okay for you to leave that relationship and to pursue being a mother on your own terms, whether or not that's IVF to become a single mother or even proposing to him, I would like to co-parent with you, but I don't want to be in a relationship with you anymore. I mean, you can off, you can ask him that and he may say no. He probably will say no to that, particularly if he wants to stay with you. But there are multiple ways to become mothers that exist outside of the very strict model that we've been raised with. That idea of divesting your romantic life from a desire for motherhood is so empowering. And I wish that I had heard that as I was growing up as a as a young woman because they are so they've been linked together for such a long time and it's just not serving women. It is not serving women. I think there are a lot of women who secretly would maybe not even admit this to themselves, but who are uh, harassed by the ticking biological clock. And it's like a, a game of musical chairs. The music stops and you sit down and you're like, who am I sitting on the chair with? I guess they'll do. And it leads to a lot of unhappiness, I think, because women end up compromising and settling for situations that they know they're not really happy in but they can't they can't confront it because the moment that you confront it you have to make a choice about whether or not you you change your life or whether or not you just continue settling for less than what you want but i do think and and this is something i'm just thinking out loud here i think that society is very much still grounded in the nuclear family, obviously, but also support. So I would, I'd love to hear more about how women do carve this life for themselves in this way because I think for a lot of women sometimes financial barriers are front of mind and other barriers come, come to you that you think would prevent you from kind of doing what, what you suggest in divesting romantic relationships from child rearing but I think it's such an empowering and intriguing thought and something that we really need to explore and to continue to advocate for ways to make this possible to as many women as possible. Well the problem is that it doesn't it's not in uh, white cis gendered heterosexual patriarchy's best interests to have women live independent lives like this. Oh no. As you know, particularly in your work, the unpaid labour of women is what supports a particular kind of man to rise to the top. It supports our Um, entire economy without women's unpaid labour. Yeah. 
we're fucked. So a truly radical society would be one and a truly progressive society would be one that economically put systems and structures in place that made it really easy for women to be single mothers and for women to support each other and, you know, to live communally together in order to have the support for child rearing that they need. But that doesn't serve the society that we live in. No. So, I mean, are. in some ways we've re- replaced the idea of the village that raises the children with the nuclear family that is actually just the woman doing everything. Let's yeah. face and it. It's not, it's, not, it's not actually, it's definitely not helpful and beneficial to the mental health of the mother. And the best thing that anyone can do for a child is to ensure the health and safety of their, their mother primarily, I think. Um, which maybe sounds counterintuitive to what I'm saying because, of course, you need an active... If there is a father present, then he needs to be actively involved and he needs to have strong mental health too. But given that we... Particularly in those early years when the survival of the child is so in, inherently linked to the physical uh, mothering that is that occurs, you know, whether or not you choose to breastfeed or not, but just just that bond that exists between a mother and the baby... I think that the support, the lack of support that a lot of women with young children are experiencing is having a profound effect on their happiness and their mental health. And that is not something that is ever discussed. Again, it's it comes back to you should be so grateful that you have this bonnie child. Mm, yeah. it's, it, it reminds me a little bit of... It reminds me a little bit of the migrant worker debate a little bit because women who suffer tremendous trauma from childbirth are so often told, well, you have a healthy Mm. baby. What are you complaining about? Mm, Exactly, that you can't. I mean, I've talked about this a lot as well based on my own personal experience of birth trauma and recovery afterwards that there is no space often for people who've been through pregnancy and childbirth to discuss those issues. Because as long as, and also, you know, we mentioned disabled women before and forced sterilization. Mm-hmm. There is, there's also the weird ableist connotations around the idea of a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. All that matters is that you have a healthy baby. What, what does that yeah. mean? If you don't have what society views as a healthy baby, then you're allowed to complain. Um, it's not acceptable that. If you've been through childbirth and you've suffered a prolapse or a fourth degree tear and, you know, that you might be one one in three people who suffer incontinence after birth, one in three that never talk about it, but that somehow you should just be happy because that baby came out alive. Mm. The lack of support and care that is given to, and it it leads, it goes back into that um, question of the unpaid labor of women as well worldwide is that to me it's it's just so incredibly insulting that we hear from male-led governments about you know women having children for the country and we need to oh the terrible the low birth rates and isn't it terrible women are so selfish they're not having children anymore and you're like why the fuck would a woman want to have a child when there's nothing in place to support her through that so the fact that like we're creating the future, if you want to talk based purely on economics, we're creating the future generation of taxpayers and yet get nothing for that service. Mm. 
there is so much there to unpack. It's just, it's like, it's kind of the intersection between um, capitalism, the patriarchy, um, white supremacy, like all of these things come together. And the way they all manifest is by the people in power continually gaslighting and disregarding the lived experience of the people who don't have power, whatever category or whatever intersection we're talking about here. Whether you're a migrant worker who's told you are so lucky to come here and work for a minimum wage or a young mother who's struggling saying you're so lucky to have a healthy child or a, a woman who has a partner that she's just not that into saying, well, you're so lucky he doesn't hit you. Yeah, it's coming in so many different directions. Oh my god, it reminds me of this. Um, and then the women who perform that kind of cheerleading as well. You know, it reminds me of that Facebook post that was going around a couple of weeks ago. I think it's actually a, a year or so old, but I'm not sure if you saw it, Sangomi. Um, it's a woman who <laughs> went on this big. It was a long post about how yes, she can get frustrated sometimes that her husband doesn't put the towels back up in the bathroom or that he leaves his you know, beard clippings in the sink and that he doesn't do any work around the house, blah, 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 blah. And she knows that other women can get frustrated by those things too. But actually those things are the signs that he's still there, that he hasn't left I her. Yeah. And I, I just, wow, not only is the bar incredibly low for men, but how fucking low do women want to put the bar on themselves? I know. You know? Beard clippings. His his actual disrespect and disregard for being a functional member of the community that is this household is at least a sign that he hasn't left me because, of course, I'm a big giant piece of shit that just deserves the bare minimum. There's so much of that internalised. I think so So many women do kind of help the patriarchy by internalising all of those messages because I you do hear women tell other women like who are you looking for like why don't you just settle like you're 35 now like TikTok, TikTok. like it, it does it's really it's actually really hard to be a woman like really mm-hmm. hard to be a woman and to get through all of the brainwashing that we are constantly bombarded with with any sense of self and dignity and self-worth mm. but the mm. fight goes on it does and probably a good note to end on is to go back to that concept of permission that we can give you, Saomi and I can give any listener permission to prioritize your happiness, but actually you don't need our fucking permission to do it. No woman needs anyone else's permission to make choices in her life that will lead to her, to healthy, great outcomes for her. If you want to be single and live in your own house and have your own space, Listen to your heart and do those mm-hmm. things. Listen to your instincts. Women have such powerful instincts and we're so often told that we don't. We're told that we're irrational and we're told all sorts of things. But I firmly believe that women have incredible instincts and you the only permission you need is the permission to follow your instincts. And if that's one thing that you can take from today, then that would be really good. Amen. You've been listening to the Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. 
find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. Please, if you like it, then consider rating and reviewing it because it's really nice to have feedback. If you enjoy the hotline, you can support the ongoing making of it at my Patreon, which is www.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. I do all of the production myself, which is why sometimes it can be a little bit shaky. Uh, If you have a question you'd like answered, you can submit it to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com. And don't worry, all submissions are treated as totally anonymous because we're big sisters and we've got your back. My guest this week has been Sayomi Ariyawansa, a human rights lawyer, researcher, and all-round excellent human who, by the way, I must say, gives fucking great advice. (laughs) Sayomi, is there anything you would like to leave our listeners with? You're beautiful, you're precious, and you are wonderful. Listen to your heart and be uncompromising. I love that. And I should turn that into a jingle. (laughs) Thank you so much, Pam. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead. Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.